This is episode number 136 with Lanny Basham. New concepts and ideas to help you reach your full potential. Success 101 Podcast. Welcome to the Success 101 Podcast. This is your host, Jared Warren. And each episode, my goal is to bring you a new concept or idea to help you maximize your full potential. Thanks for joining me here today. Now let's kick things off. Hey guys, welcome back to the Success 101 podcast. As always, this is your host, Jared Warren, and I am very, very excited to be bringing you our guest today, who is Lanny Basham. He is the founder of Mental Management Systems, but has an incredible backstory, and I could not wait to get him on the podcast this week and share his work with you guys. Lanny has a very colorful history when it comes to mental management systems and how he handles the attitude of mental management In 1972 at the Munich, Germany Olympic Games, in fact, Lanny Basham failed in his attempt to win the gold medal in international rifle shooting, a sport that, in my opinion, gets a very underrated amount of attention based on the difficulty and the mental aspect that it takes to win. Lanny would tell you that he had a mental failure in 1972 at the Munich Games, and it cost him the gold medal. He got the silver instead, and as you guys will hear, Lanny is a competitor, and he doesn't like to lose at anything and Silver was not first place, so I'm sure in his mind that was losing. But he came home, he was frustrated, he wanted to take a course in controlling the mind under pressure, and after looking for such seminar and not finding any satisfaction, Lanny took it upon himself to start seeking out mental management strategies and techniques, and he started interviewing Olympic gold medalists to discover what they were doing differently to win, and he'll share some of that in our episode here today. What he discovered was absolutely remarkable. It led him to create a system of mental control that he called mental management that he still runs at his center today. Within the next six years, Lanny Basham dominated his sport, winning 22, that's right, you heard me, 22 world individual and team titles, setting four world records and winning the coveted Olympic gold medal in Montreal in 1976. For the past 34 years, Lanny has been teaching mental management to Olympians, business owners, Fortune 500 corporations, and the elite of sport and business community. His clients include the PGA and PGA Tour players, World and Olympic champions, Fortune 500 companies, the United States Secret Service, U.S. Navy SEALs, the U.S. Marine Corps Marksman Unit, and Olympic teams of USA, Canada, India, Japan, China, Korea, and Australia, to name a few. And guys, this is one of those books that I happen to just stumble upon, and I'm incredibly glad that I did. And little did I know that one day I would have the opportunity to bring Lanny's four decades worth of mental management strategies to you guys today. And my strong encouragement to you guys would be to go pick up the book with winning in mind, which is a no-nonsense book around mental management systems. It's packed with huge ideas, and I think you guys are going to get a ton out of it. So I'll mention this later in the show, but if you're curious, head over to mentalmanagement.com to find out more about Lanny and his story, or go check out his book on Amazon or order it through him as he personalizes every book that he sends out. If you or anyone you know have ever struggled with mental strategies or trying to get your mindset in the right place, you absolutely do not want to miss this episode. So stop whatever you're doing, guys, because this is one that you definitely want to dial into 
as Lanny works through his process of mental management systems and helping us become better each day from a mental management standpoint. I cannot wait to hear back from some of you as you send feedback after this episode, and I know you're going to love it. So without any further delay, let's cut right to my conversation with Lanny Basham. Lanny Basham, welcome to the Success 101 podcast. What an honor it is to have you on here today. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. Happy to be here. Man, I am so fortunate. I get excited about all the podcasts that I do, of course, but I have known your name for such a long time and wanted to have you on for such a long time. And as I said in the introduction, with winning in mind is one of my favorite books that I've ever read for many reasons. I've been through it twice now and marked the whole thing up. And I know that, uh, as I also mentioned, you're an Olympic champion, third most medals in U.S. shooting history, which I'm sure that sport gets way less credit, uh, you would probably agree, than what it deserves because of how difficult it is. But now you're a mental coach and you've been, uh, as your tagline says, you've been turning competitors into champions since 1977. So for almost 40 years, you've been dealing with what I tell my advisors that I'm coaching and the clients that I'm coaching all the time. The hardest thing that we have to control, if we can control it, is our mindset and figuring out a way to master that will make us so much better. And I just want to kick off here. One of the great ideas that you have in your book is about performance being 90% mental or the game being 90% mental, but very few people ever take time to focus on that. And I was laughing whenever I was reading through your book because I find the same thing with people that I coach. Can you speak to that a little bit and why that's so true in our society today for both athletes and people in the business world? Well, you know, if you ask any uh, PGA Tour player, we work with a lot of PGA Tour players and Olympic athletes. And if you ask an Olympic athlete or a PGA Tour player or just about anybody in uh, sport or business, what percentage of what you do is mental? You're going to get a big number back. Um, I've never gotten from an Olympic champion or a PGA Tour player a number smaller than 90%. <laughs> okay, so then you ask the second question. Uh, well, if this is 90% of the game... Since you've been doing it, have you spent 90% of your time and money and energy on the middle game? And you'll probably get a very low number back. You know, what percentage of time have you spent? And normally they'll say, I don't know. I read your book, you know, or somebody's book. <laughs> and, right. uh, you know, and that's about it. But if you take a look at the way, um, way we learn how to do anything. Now, everybody knows that attitude's important. And uh, as a matter of fact, there's probably more good information available to someone in sales than there is to someone, say, in, as, in a sport like golf or in Olympic sports, um, because you're more likely to read self-help books uh, if you're, if you're in, in sales or you're going to be exposed to that through seminars and things like that. But if you really look at it, we are, uh, as a society, we... Everybody at the top levels think that, they, that what they do is 90% mental, but um, how many courses did you have in the mental game in high school? Uh, zero. I'll tell you that one real quickly. Did you have in college, in your major? It's 90% of the game, and yet we, 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 as a society, as a culture, don't pay any attention to it. And we, we hope that somehow or another you're going to get this on your own. And uh, I'm actually working right now a large amount of my time 
in developing a curriculum for high school where we'll actually teach in a semester in high school what we actually teach in a two-day program or a three-day program here. Um, and I'm not pulling anything back. I'm not holding anything back. I'm teaching these high school students exactly what I would teach a tour player who comes in and pays thousands and thousands of dollars for our, our information. I want them to have that information. And the reason I'm doing that is because everybody that comes through our courses, they all said the same thing. I wish I'd known this sooner. Well, how, how could you possibly know it? It's not offered in school. And so if you really want to get the information that we teach, you're pretty much going to have to do what I did, which is essentially interview Olympic gold medalists for years and years and, and interview world champions and say, well, you know, what makes you different? You know, why is 95% of all winning accomplished by only 5% of the participants? And I found out why. They don't think the same way people in the middle of the leaderboard think. And so what I've done is spent the last 40 years uh, talking to these folks and trying to see if I can outline or at least put into some kind of workable way to think about it, about it, what they are doing that's different and how they're thinking different from the people that are, that are struggling. And, uh, and that's really what uh, the focus of my work is. And I just feel like that this information is not complicated and it's something that could happen sooner in your life rather than later and probably save you a lot of heartache, uh, increase your productivity and, and make life just better for you. So what you're saying is people in the high school, based on where they are mentally and what they've gone through developmentally, they are prepared to receive that same sort of information that you say a PGA pro place pro player would pay thousands of dollars for. You're saying that based on your 40 years of experience, they're ready for that without you holding back anything. I don't have to hold back a thing. When we wrote the curriculum and we've started out uh, uh, with a couple of schools um, in pilot programs right now, but... The, uh, when we wrote the curriculum, we did, not, we did not hold back anything. We said, we think that someone, freshman or, or sophomore in high school, can handle this. I mean, the, the whole purpose of trying to make it simple is that simple gets duplicated. And when it's too complicated, when you want to use words that nobody can pronounce, um, it's not going to be duplica duplicated out there. And uh, what good's that? Right. We're trying to to make it work. And, you know, we're not saying we, we have, we're the only people out there with good information. But what we are saying is that I don't know anybody that um, has done what I've done. I failed in the Olympics in 1972 to win a gold medal because I, I choked. Uh, I had a mental failure. So I got a silver instead of a gold medal, came home, and I wanted to win the gold medal so much, and I knew my problem was mental. So... I interviewed Olympic gold medalists for two years to find out what they were doing about the mental game, and I got some good information. Used it to create a, a system of how to think under pressure, and used it to win the world championships, and then won a gold medal in the Olympics with this, and then began to teach it and refine it. And, and over the years, uh, my clients have taught me better ways to say it and, and simpler ways to put it and you still get the same image or the message across. And so uh, I, I, all the time while this is happening over this 40-year period, uh, the interest in mental performance has risen. And we're at a point now in the world where uh, 
uh, you can ask almost anybody what percentage of what you do is mental. They're going to give you a good, no, a, a high number back. Well, that wasn't always the case. When I was, uh, and back in the 70s, uh, when I won my medals, the, the conventional wisdom there, the thinking was that um, if you had a good mental game, and you just, you just, you're born with this. Uh, you're, you either either had it or you didn't, and you couldn't get it. You couldn't learn it. And uh, and then later on, as as people started getting more and more interested in it, uh, they they went to sports psychology, and sports psychology is still out there. But sports psychology is based on psychology. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, and I'm, I'm I've got friends of mine that are sports psychologists and so forth. But my program is not based on psychology. My program is based on what the winners are using. Yeah, that was going to be my next question is how your mental management system is different than sports psychology, because I've heard you say that many times before, and I was curious what the difference was. Well, a psychology, a sports psychology is based on psychology. So basically, you've got a group of psychologists that, that study the mind, and, and, and um, you want to be a sports psychologist, you go, take, you go take your training from them. Mine is 100% competitor-based. Uh, I'm interested in winning. I'm interested in what it takes to win. So by me visiting with... Uh, People who don't compete, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a, of a stretch for me to get the kind of information that my competitors want to know from people that don't, that don't, don't face the pressure that they're facing all the time. So what I've tried to do is go, go in another direction. I've spent all of my years uh, talking to people who are successful, to the winners, and to say, okay, what are you doing about the million? Find out what, they, what works for them. And then put that together in a, in a program that uh, I use personally to win a gold medal in the Olympics. And, and if you think what you're doing is pressure, try the Olympic Games. Try, <laughs> try, try going into the Olympics favored to win and win on that one day. When you, if you mess it up, you have a four-year wait. You probably won't get to come back. Yeah, I cannot imagine the pressure. The, the, I, I know that, that, that it's, it's a lot of pressure. A lot of, whatever, a lot of people do is pressure, but... I don't think that there's a, an example, it's certainly in sport, where the pressure is higher than it is for an Olympic athlete in an Olympic final. So if it works there, it'll work anywhere. It'll, it'll work for a business person, a salesperson, uh, for a manager, for, for anyone. That's uh, where you're, you, have to, you really have to perform today, and there's no, no getting around it. Uh, this, this is important. Now, Lenny, I was going to ask you just, and I don't want to overstep you here, but I want to ask you just if we can dive down in the nuts and bolts and guts of this thing. I hear people throw around, you know, mindset and mind game and uh, mental management all the time. Uh, and, and you're, you know, you've got a lot of years uh, doing that. To you, to Lanny Basham, what is mental management? Since so many people throw that word around or mindset around, what is it really to you and how do you excel in helping your clients there change their, really change their life and change their mind in the process? Well, let's, let's start out by defining mental management. And uh, mental management is a subset of mental training. Mental training being the, the overall word, I guess, that you can use. Sports psychology is a part of that. Mental management is a part of that. What separates mental management is that um, being competitor-based, I want, I want to know what am I supposed to think about as a performer that's the optimum thing to think about before, during, and after a task. If that task is a presentation or that task is, uh, is getting a 10 or that task is uh, hitting a golf shot, I want to know, what, what's, can you teach me what the optimum thing to think about before, during, and after a task is 
And can you teach me how to do it? Can you teach me why I'm doing it and not just what to do? Because what I see so much in, 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 the, in the writings of self-help books and things like that is that or you can read a thousand self-help books, and most of them are going to be pretty good at telling you, here's what you need to do. You need to be confident. Well, okay. Well, how do you get confidence? <laughs> right. They tell me how to do it, and it's, it's, not, and it's not there in the books. Okay, so, so our program is, because I'm talking to competitors, they want to know what I wanted to know. I want to know, if you're going to tell me what to do, tell me how to do it and tell me why I'm doing it and give, give me some, some foundational elements so that if I'm in the heat of battle and I get about, you know, two or three degrees off center, uh, I can recognize that I'm off center and get back because you've told me why I'm doing this. So let me give you some examples. First of all, if I were to define mental management, it would be mental management is a process of improving the probability of having consistent mental performance under pressure on demand. Simply put, I want to be at my best when I need to be. I want to do it confidently. I want it to be in command. I want, it to, I want to be so good at this that I don't have to try to do it. I can just trust that it'll happen. And I believe that performance is a function of three mental processes. The conscious mind, what you think about, your thoughts, the subconscious, your skills, and the self-image. Your self-image makes you act like you. Are you, you know, if, are you confident? Are you, can, do you believe you can do this? Um, you know, if, uh, if you, I guess Henry Ford said, you know, if you think you can, you think you can't, you're right. That's self-image. Self-image is your, your belief in whether or not you can do this or, or, or you can't do this. And so when we work with, with an athlete or work with a business person or a performer in any way, in, in any area, is what we have to do is, first of all, define what is the task that, that, you, that you're doing. If it's hitting a golf shot, okay, that's the task. Well, there's an anticipation phase of that task. There's a, there's a method of thinking. And it's not only what you think about, but how much energy you get. Can you overtry? You can sure overtry and shoot a rifle or shooting a bow or hitting a golf shot. I think you can over, overtry on the phone. I think you can overtry in a one-on-one -on -one presentation, or I, th I know you can overtry when you're standing in front of a group trying to trying to convey a message. That was a huge part of your work for me, by the way, was the whole overtrying thing because so many times we do that. Well, I call it muscling it through, uh, but it's just you're trying too hard, and you also talked about trying too little, and I thought that was pretty fascinating you know, how you broke those uh, broke those down. Yeah, I think what really happens. This was a big thing for me, by the way, when when. Uh, yeah, I kind of bought in this idea when I was in college in my first three years on the U.S. team when I wasn't winning anything. I was definitely performing in practice good enough to win. But when I got in a tournament, um, my performance dropped just enough to keep me out of the out of the medals. And if somebody had told me it was a mental, I, I, I wouldn't know. I, I wouldn't have agreed with that because I thought I was pretty mentally tough um, because I was in the top five shooters in the world. And you don't you don't get there by being mentally weak. But the problem was that I was, I, was, I was beating myself, and I was confusing work ethic and training with how hard you need to work in tournaments. And I knew that, or I thought that giving it 110% was the answer. And I was confusing work ethic, how hard you, you work in practice and how, how prepared you are, 
with when I went to a tournament, I was still having that same mindset. I was trying as hard as I could to win. I was trying to, to get the 10. I was, I was pushing all the time. And I didn't realize until I started interviewing these other Olympic champions out there that they all told me basically the same thing. They said, oh, yeah, I know what's wrong with you. You're overtrying. I said, what, what do you mean? You mean you, mean you can overtry? And one of, them, <laughs> one of them put it best. I wish I could remember who, the, who told me this, but I've, I've repeated his words many, many times. Is that everything you do in life has a certain amount of effort to give it. Mental effort, I'm talking. If you give it 1% more effort than required, your performance drops. So you don't want to be careful, but you don't want to be careless. Because if you give something too little effort, your performance drops, you're careless. If you give something too much effort, you're careful. What really happens here, uh, Warren, uh, uh, Jared, is, is that uh, when you give something too much effort, your subconscious, which is where all of your skill is anyway, can't do its job because the conscious mind gets in the way. And so the conscious mind is thinking, well, I've got to, make, I've got to do this this way. And, and it pushes you to be careful. Well, what, what does careful mean? Well, you hesitate, uh, you overthink, and you, you just can't let it flow the way someone who is trusting instead of trying can do. And that's why the optimum amount of effort is, 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 is a huge thing in, uh, in, ev- in everything that we do. Because one thing that I found out when I started working with uh, the top 5% that do 95% of the winning, and I've probably talked to more of these guys than just about anybody I know, and I found out that they're really not trying to win when they're competing. Now, they're definitely trying to win when they're training. But when they're competing, they're, tr- they're not trying to win. They're trusting that they will. And there, there's a, that's a very important uh, distinction between trusting and trying. Trying is over-trying. Uh, mm. and, and when, when you stop thinking about execution and start thinking about outcome, conscious mind can only think of one thing at a time. And if you're thinking about outcome, you're not thinking about process. You're not thinking about execution. And when you, when you pull your... Your, your focus off of proper execution, your, your, now your mental game is a function of outcome. Now, th- let's think about this. How, how important is consistency in your, in your business? Oh, it's huge. It's what we talk about all the time. Yeah. Well, if you talk about a sport like rifle shooting, which is a sport of constants, everything is a constant in rifle shooting. Ten rings the same size. It's always 50 meters away. It's the size of an eraser on a pencil. All the ranges are face north. All the ranges are the same size, and, and you look the same. You don't care where you are and anywhere in the world. You, you go to the range. That's what it looks like. And there's really only one variable, and that's the wind. It's a huge variable because we're shooting a 22 caliber bullet, and the wind moves a 22 caliber bullet around a lot. Well, in a sport like that, anything that's a, that's a variable, a sport of constants, is a huge problem. One of our Olympic sports, air rifle, is shot indoors. There's no, there's no wind. So there are no variables there. It's one position, 60, 60 shots in a tin ring that's barely, barely visible. It's a sharp pinpoint, uh, a pencil point on a, on a piece of paper 10 meters away. But what makes that 
work is that you just duplicate everything. Everything is exactly the same all the time. Well, in a sport like golf, where it's a sport of variables, where there's almost nothing that's the same. The courses aren't the same. The pin placements aren't the same. The shots are never the same. But in a sport like that, a sport of variables, anything you can make a constant is huge. Okay, so let's talk about mental consistency for a minute. Mental consistency has three parts to it. The first part is to carefully choose your primary. In other words, what works best? If you had to take this, whatever your task is, if your task is, is, is making a sales call or making a presentation or, or shooting a town, whatever it is, if you could determine the optimum thing to think about before you start the task, if you could come up with that, and the optimum thing to think about after the task, we need to talk about some, something about that because I, I think far too much is talked about what you do in anticipation of something and too, far too little is talked about what you do about what just happened to you. Sure. But if you can figure out the optimum thing to think about that's, and the optimum thing to do, then that is definable. Anything that's definable is duplicable. And if you can duplicate something, you can have mental consistency. But outcome is always a variable. The environment is always a variable. So if the environment is determining what you picture, then your mental game can never be a constant because your mental game is a function of a variable. Cannot happen. So what we try to do is we try to get people to come up with what they feel is the optimum thing to think about before a task starts. Now, there are two kinds of tasks out there. There's, there's proactive tasks and reactive tasks. A proactive task, you get to decide what you do and when you start. That's like if you're going to make a phone call, everything that you do before you dial, dial the, uh, the phone, before somebody answers, is proactive. But the minute you get somebody on the other end, it's reactive. And so you cannot duplicate a reactive task, but what you can, but you can definitely duplicate a proactive element. You can duplicate what works best for you to get your mindset in a, in a position to maximize the reactive element by how you prepare yourself mentally in the proactive element. And then you, you, in the reactive element, there are certain things that you, that you can do, but you can't, you can't tell somebody the same thing all the time because their answers are different from your, to your questions and, and uh, your experience and your knowledge and, and everything will come, will come through. All the training that you, that you do uh, will help you, you do that. There's some drills that you can do, certainly, to make sure that you know where to go when this happens, if that happens just like a tennis player can when the ball's in play. But I'm concerned about finding the optimum thing to think about. That's step one. Step two is you master what you've chosen. The, the reason why a lot of you guys, I personally, I'm not trying to tell your business, but I think the reason why a lot of people leave your industry and why a lot of people leave all sports is because they, they never stick around long enough to master it. True. And, and so and the problem is that if you have something mastered, then you can trust it. That's the third step. Now, now you have something to trust. Now, now you go, go to the end of the task with total confidence, knowing that the numbers are going to come your way because you are so darn good. 
you know, I got to the point in uh, because I once I, I won my first world championships. I ran about six years at number one in the world at what I was doing. And I woke up one, one morning and, I, and the, the thought hit me, do you realize it's impossible for me to shoot bad? <laughs> there's, there's no way. I'm going to be in every tournament. And I don't, I don't know if this is, I can't remember. I, I don't remember in that last years of my, of my career, I don't ever remember taking lower than third in a tournament. Wow. I only made, I only made one, one mistake. I should have been a pro golfer. That would have been a better deal. Than <laughs> right, right. But, uh, okay, so how do you know if you got mastery? Now, the, the, the mastery is an elusive thing, and it comes and goes. But, but mastery, it, 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 I, my definite, definition of mastery is this, is someone who is not yet there practices until he gets it right. Someone who's mastered something practices till they can't get it wrong. You know, when you forget to do it and you do it, you're getting close to mastery. And when you have to, when it takes effort for you to do it, you're not there yet. But once you get to the point where you make this look easy, and, and for you it is easy, then that's mastery. Yeah, I've always been amazed by so many people who prescribed to the 10,000 hours rule, you know, and say 10,000 hours of doing something will make you a master at it. And I know there's so many people, I, I would guess you're in the camp that's not, not believing in that, that's coming out now saying, hey, that's, that is not correct. It may take some people a lot longer. It may take people, some other people less time, but, uh, but it's until you get it without thinking about it is what you're saying. Well, and, and, and that, that 10,000 hour rule, by the way, I, I don't disagree with, um, with uh, Gladwell's uh, perception of that in his book, Outliers, which is one of my favorite books. But, but what I can say is that uh, you can do 10,000 hours the wrong way. If you have, have 10,000 hours of, of bad information, you can get really good at being bad. If you, have, if, if you, do, if you do it this way, if, let's, let's just say it were possible for you to train one hour a week in something. Well, you can, you, you can train 10,000 weeks if you could live that long. I don't know how long a period of time that is. But you're, you're never going to get good at anything an hour a week. Right. And, and so what, what it takes is it takes an intensity over a relatively short period of time to be able to have enough repetition and reinforcement to be, to be able to, to master something. And... I think a lot of people give up before they ever get close to that. So, so they, they put in the investment in the hard part, which is in the beginning, and, and they don't get to, to cash in on the easy part, which is, which is at the end. And, and they just don't, unfortunately, most people quit right when the, the, the tide is about to turn. And I've seen this happen way too many times. And, and where you really see it is with the guys that stay with it. And then, then you see the tide turn and you see what, what, what it can, all that investment uh, has, has made in their, in, in their life. And, and sometimes it's just one simple thing that clicks that wasn't clicking before. I, know, I think we can speed that, that whole process up. Um, and I think one of the ways to do that is to 
pay a lot of attention to the reinforcement phase of a task. I believe that every task out there has three phases to it. An anticipation phase where you're preparing to do something, an action phase where you actually do it, and a reinforcement phase, what you think about immediately after you do it. Now, call me crazy, but I'm more concerned about how my, my clients handle the reinforcement phase of a task than the anticipation of the action phase. Now, I know that the anticipation phase is important, and I know that the action phase is important. Not saying it's not. But I think a lot of people blow right past the importance of the reinforcement phase. Is how, what do you do immediately after the task? And here's why that's so important. Performance is a function of three mental processes, conscious, subconscious, self-image. The anticipation phase is a conscious circle issue, what you think about. The action phase is a subconscious circle issue. You shouldn't have to think much there. Your skill should take over. And the reinforcement phase is a self-image issue. What just happened? If you respond appropriately, your self-image should grow, regardless of whether the outcome was good or bad. If you do it correctly, you do it the way we teach you, your self-image can grow regardless of, of outcome. And I know you say that should apply to parents as well in the way that they talk to their, their children. I found that pretty fascinating also how that same parallel applies. Oh, absolutely. And, and so what, what I'm looking for is, is, is to help people to respond appropriately to what just happened. And, and I look at, at sport this way is that there's only two things going to happen when you compete um, or any kind of thing, compete in, job, in your job, your vocation. There's only two things that happen. You can be rewarded or you can learn. There's only two things that happen. I'm either going to win or I'm going to learn. There's no winning and losing. There's only winning and learning. So everything that happens to you needs to happen. You need the no's to get the yeses. You need the no's to appreciate the yeses. I mean, what if, what if everybody always said yes? Would you, would you have any motivation at all to improve? No. No. And, and so... We, we need to understand, and I'll tell you what the top people do, the top people understand this, that everything that happens to you in life needs to happen. And if, and if you're having trouble, you're not learning fast enough. And if, and if, you're not ha if you have no problems at all, your goals are too low. Lanny, let's take a, a step back here for just a second. I'm just, I'm jotting things down. Of course, I'll, I'll link everything here in show notes, and you're giving out so much information, which is so awesome. I, I love your idea, though, about process being primary. Uh, I talk all the time in my business with either the financial advisors that I'm coaching, with my own clients, or with people that I'm doing private coaching with, is that we've got to stick to a process. Uh, I know in this business, especially where it is such a mental game, you can go for days on end, and I'm sure it's like this in other businesses as well, and you've seen it, you can go for days on end with no outcome whatsoever, and you just think, oh my gosh, I've made so many phone calls, I've made so many connections, I've talked to people, I've done, you know, nothing is happening. What in the world is going on? But what you don't realize is what that process is doing behind the scenes and this wave of momentum that you have going for you. And like you said, a lot of people just stop way too early before they see the payoff of that. And I know for a lot of people also that I work with, it's just this idea of if I'm not seeing a direct result now in this, you know, if I'm not seeing the outcome now, 
then I, I might as well change my course. I'm doing something wrong. And I think just from what I've read in, in your material, you would say a lack of outcome does not mean that you are doing the process wrong. You might need to stick with something longer just to see it on through. Talk to us a little bit about process being primary for you more than you've already touched on it a little bit here so far. So let's talk about two things here because they're, they're linked together. There's only two ways to get better. One way is to find something new that's different from what you're doing that's better than what you're doing and upgrade to it. That's one way. The second way is find something that works and make it work more often. Or another way to say that is do it more often. So both of those work. Now, if you had talked to as many elite performers as I have, you would find out that all of those elite performers are spending 99% of their time in the second method and 1% of their time in the first method, meaning that they find, they've found something that works and they're spending 99% of their time making it work more often and very little experimentation. I think what people do is I think people, when, when, when things go wrong, they don't get they don't get enough tens or they don't get enough yeses. Is the first thing that they say, well, I've got to I've got to change my method. I've got to change what I'm doing. Well, we have a little saying, and where I come from is that if you're doing something different from what the top people are doing and you're successful, you're called you're called innovative. If you're, <laughs> right. if you're doing something that's different from what the top people are doing and you're not successful, you're called stupid. And, <laughs> This, this, is, this is the thing. Most people don't want to do the correct thing long enough to get the results that they desire. They want instant gratification. And delayed gratification is definitely the more, much more common than instant gratification. Oh, it's, it's nice to, to, to have it happen, and I wish it would all pace out. Uh, by my standards all the time, but it just doesn't work that way. Life is just not like that. You may be doing everything right and not getting results. And, uh, but if you play the game long enough, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to work. Okay, the second part of this is the reason you need to be really concerned about process is that the only way to beat over trying is to put process as primary. All right, let me explain that. If you take a look at my shooting career, my first three to four years on the U.S. team, I, I didn't win anything. Now, I was in the top four in the United States, and if you're in the top four in the United States, you're in the top four in the world. But I couldn't beat my teammates. They all had world titles, Olympic medals, and I didn't. And I had a, a competition, shooting competition, and, and, uh, and, and after this one competition, for the next six years, I won almost everything. And something happened in that one competition to turn my whole career around. And what happened is I found out how to beat overtrying. Because overtrying was the thing that was killing me. Is I wanted to win, so I was thinking about winning. I wanted to beat my teammates, so I was thinking about that. I was thinking about outcome. All of those things I just mentioned are environmental. They're all variables. I was not thinking about a constant. So I have this tournament, and uh, I said, I've got to start doing something different. I mean, 
Because I'll tell you what's hard to do. When somebody tells you you're, you're trying too hard, well, how do you try less hard? How do you dial it back? Where, where's the dial? And I've, I've, I've tried this and it didn't work. And I've had clients have tried this and it didn't work. You say, well, I'll tell you what, I'm just not going to care. Well, if you go in and you don't care, you get careless. So that doesn't work. You can't find the dial. You don't want to be careless. What are you going to do? Well, I, I decided instead of changing how much I cared, I'd change what I care about. So instead of caring about the outcome, which is a variable, I cared about process. Process is, is for, for me, it's what I'm thinking about before the shot. And so I determined that there was a mental program that I could run that I could do every time. And when I did it every time, it improved the probability that I'd get a good shot. And then after the shot, I would do a little evaluation of that shot. And if, if I got a good shot, I'd rehearse it again. If I got a poor shot, I'd, 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 I'd rehearse what the correction to make it a good shot would be. So I was constantly reinforcing in, in my, what I call reload, which is what you think about after the task, I was constantly reinforcing either what I did right or what I needed to do. And I totally eliminated beating myself up. And I, and I thought, the outcome is not nearly as important as how I manage me. Because managing me, is I can handle that long term. Now, let me tell you how important this was. And and I think just camping out on that right there is, I mean, obviously everything that you said here today plays into that that point right there that you just made of not beating yourself over the head whenever things don't go exactly the way that you want it to. And I know in the book, so many times you said, you know, that's like me whenever you would do things or that's interesting. You would show up ready to perform. You knew you could do it. You'd rehearsed it thousands of times. You miss a shot. You say, that's interesting. Instead of just beating yourself up over the head, like we always try to do, and I know that uh, about a month ago, whenever you and I spoke on the phone, I told you that was one of my favorite parts of your writing. And your your response was, I loved it. You said, yeah, what's that going to do? And, and that's just right. It's, it, we all know that. We know that self-sabotage and beating ourselves up is not going to do anything except get us further off track. But we do it so often. And that's typically, you also say that that's typically the first thing people talk about when you say, well, how'd you do? They immediately want to go into the negative part of what they did. And and before we, you know, in, in the podcast, I'd love to camp out, out on that a little bit more. So didn't mean to stop you there. I just, I wanted to make sure that everybody listening heard that. It's just the mental game that we're all playing of self-sabotage and beating ourselves up just does nothing except get us off track even further. It does nothing for us in a positive way. Well, if you take a look at what the top people do, the top people are not, are not doing that. They're not beating themselves up. The top people are constantly thinking about what they want to have happen, not what, they, what happened, what went wrong. Thinking about what went wrong and beating yourself up and talking about it to other people, keeping the middle of the leaderboard, it, it, and, and and you're never going to compete with with the big boys. So, and here's why, and I think this is this is what I'm trying to to get my high school students and and, and everybody to, to understand is there's the self image connection. You see, the self image, the part that makes you act like you grows and shrinks based, based on imprinting. Now, there are three major forms of imprints. The first one is what actually happens. Now, if you are successful, then it imprints in yourself images like me to be successful. If you're, if you're not successful, it imprints it's like me to be not successful, okay? But also, every time you think about 
something like you just use golf as an example. Every time you hit a, think about hitting a good golf shot, your self-image grows. Every time you think about hitting a bad golf shot, your self-image shrinks. Right. Every time you talk about a bad performance, you move in that direction. You move your self-image in that direction. So your self-image is constantly growing and shrinking based on what you think about, what you talk about, what you write about. One of the things that amazes me is how, is how people can live without keeping a journal. Uh, keeping a journal forces you to write down some things. Now, I'm, I'm not uh, an advocate of keeping a diary. A diary is a lack of performance journal. I'm talking about keeping a performance journal where you write down, here's, here's what I did today. Here's what I did, what I, what I learned. Here's what I did well today. Yeah, I'm so glad you made that distinction, too, because it is about the winning part of it. That's right. And so, so writing is a, is a tremendous self-image booster. So if you if you could control what you think about, think about only what you want to have happen, talk about only what you 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 did well or, or what you what you want to do, every time you think or talk about the the solution or what you want to have happen, your self-image grows. Every time you think about or talk about the problem, self-image shrinks. So then the, the, the final one is is the environment. If you're around a bunch of negative people, you're gonna be negative. If everybody in your office is beating themselves up, you're gonna beat yourself up too. If you're, if you're around a bunch of positive people, you're going to be positive. You're around a bunch of jerks, you're going to be a jerk. I mean, if that's, that's <laughs> right. why parents don't want their kids, uh, you know, playing with drug dealers. I mean, you know. That, that, and I think you call those solution-based people versus problem-based people, if I remember correctly. That's for sure. And uh, and parents, uh, you know, they, they have a bad habit of talking to their kids about, uh, about what happened. And uh, how'd you do? And uh, they start talking about what, the, what went wrong. Well, gosh, you know, what was the problem? You know, you made an A last semester, you made a D this semester. What happened? What's, what are you doing wrong? What's, what's the matter here? And so let's get them talking about the problem. Well, they're going to continue to have it if you continue talking about the problem. What's the solution to the problem? And the top people typically just don't do that. They, they're just constantly picturing what they want to have happen, not what, they, what they're afraid of. And they worry. Worry is another one that uh, you're, you're worried about the future. You just improve the probability that whatever you're worrying about is going to happen. Why don't you picture what you want to know about? Right. I know one time in competition, I could butcher this a little bit, but I think it was like, it was like 600 shots and you shot, I think you missed two of them, if I remember correctly. I hope I'm not butchering it here, but you, you shot like 598 out of 600. And the reporter afterwards wanted to ask you about the two <laughs> that you missed. And I don't remember the answer that you gave, but it was something along the lines of, why are we even talking about that? Yeah, I mean, what? Yeah, it's exactly what happened. I, he asked me, he said, "Mr. Basham, you shot a five ninety-eight and won a medal. What happened on those two nines? And I said, well, "Do you really want to know? I mean, do you really want to know? I mean, it, you know, so you can get you can get nines just like Lanny Basham does. I mean, yeah. It, by the way, I can't tell you how I got those two nines anymore. You know, I can tell you how I got fifty-eight tens. But see, we, our whole society is geared around talking about the thing that stands out. Well. If if you do if you do a lot of things right, and, but you rarely talk about that, but you're but occasionally you'll do something wrong, and but because it's it's different, you want to talk about that. It's like when you go to school and and you've got 10, 10 questions on an exam, and two of them are marked in red. Those are the two you missed. Well, it'd be great if teachers would use a green pen and mark all the ones they got right. And so, <laughs> that's so, right. You know the, that's right. The imprinting would be different. The imprinting would be different. So 
don't don't think that that, that your self image is is dynamic. It is always growing or shrinking, and it's based on what you think about, what you talk about, what you write about, the people that you're around, the kind of, of things that you read, all of that is determining your future. And this is the one thing that I have in common with all the positive motivational writers and all the guys I've been on stage with that, that talk about the power of positive thinking and all that kind of stuff, is that, that there is no question you become whatever, what you picture. Whatever you think a thing to be, that's what it becomes. Yeah, I know visualization is huge for you, and we could go on and on about uh, your visualization in the book and how you, you visualized two years, you weren't even able to compete, and you were able to visualize um, just what you would be doing if you were competing, if you were practicing, and, uh, and it, it went on, I believe, and led you, uh, led you to win quite a bit more, maybe even a medal during that, uh, during that part of the book. I can't remember exactly. Uh, well, what happened there was from 1976 until 78, I was reigning Olympic gold medalist and reigning world champion in the Army, and its infinite wisdom decided they didn't want me shooting anymore. So they, they gave me an assignment that, that, that uh, I was 250 miles away from the nearest range. And so, so I, I couldn't go to the range. So instead, um, I had a bedroom I wasn't using, and I'd go in the bedroom, put on all my equipment, and, and dry fire. I got up against the wall and reduced target. That when I looked through the sights, it looked like a bullseye to me. And um, and so I would dry fire three, four hours a night, four nights a week. That was the only thing I could do. Now today we have simulators that lasers you can actually put on a rifle and get some feedback. I didn't have any feedback, but but at least I could I could rehearse. And all the rehearsal that I was doing, I was winning thousands of tournaments, and I did that for two years. And uh, when I came back from the World Championships, um, okay, I won. I won the World Championships. Now I've got to believe that that uh, that all that dry firing, all that imprinting of getting a ten helped. Uh, yeah, hadn't hadn't shot in two years and came back and won the World Championships. That's amazing. That's right. I mean, only I went to only went to range six times in two years. The national championships is three days long. I won the national championships in 1977, and I won the national championships in 1978. So in other words, I got took leave, went to World Championships, shot three days in a row, won the national championships, and then a year later went back and did it again. And those were the, six, the only six days I got to go to the range in, in, in two years. And that was one of the reasons why I got out of the military. Because at, at, my, at my level, I could do something nobody else in the world could do, and the Army wouldn't let me do it. I thought, I'm working for a, a boss that doesn't understand. and uh, so I got out, and I believe me, I, I enjoyed being in the military, and I, I want to thank you, taxpayers, for the opportunity for me to learn how to shoot. <laughs> yeah, they sent you to the Olympics, basically. That's, exactly That's good. Lanny, as we get ready to wrap up the podcast here, I so thank you for your time and, and appreciate what you're doing, just helping people become better. And this this question may be self-evident just based on the things that you've mentioned here, but I know I've got a ton of both collegiate and professional athletes that listen to this podcast. I get feedback from them. I've got a lot of mental performance or high-performance coaches that work on on the mental game, not to the level that you and I are. That's why I was so excited to get you on but how can you help a lot of business executives or entrepreneurs or people that are out there in their just busy fields that deal with different mindset, though it's the same in some ways? How are you able to tailor your message to them as well, since they're not a PGA Tour, you know, participant, they're not playing in, they're not, not competing in the Olympics? Is it about the same or is it different when it goes over to the corporate world? Well, a lot of what we teach is applicable to anyone 
regardless of what the task is. You know, when you start talking about um, about self-image, you start talking about imprinting. That that's not that doesn't only only happen to, to a golfer. I mean, it happens to to, every, to everyone. Sure. You talk about developing. Uh, if you're a manager and you've got a, you've got people that that you supervise, are you developing those people? Uh, are, if you don't understand what what builds and tears down self-image, you may exactly you may, you may be in, in a, have a, a good intention to develop them, but you, you may be actually causing them to picture the problem, not the solution. This That's happens correct. all the time. So their self-image is not great. So, so we've just got so much experience in work, working with with folks. Now I'll, I'll tell you, I've got to teach a little bit more athletes to catch up with the number of business people I've taught. Because you have to understand, for about 18 years in my career, I wasn't. I was teaching very few Olympic athletes and PGA Tour players. Everybody I taught was in business because those are the only people that pay my fees. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't realize that. That's good. Oh yeah. When I first started teaching, when I first got my company started, after you know, I thought, okay, I'm, I'm going to teach Olympic athletes. Well, I, I found out as a business idea that's a that's a really poor idea. All business, all not all, but almost all Olympic athletes are broke. So if if you want to have a business model that actually pays rent, uh, you're not gonna, you're going to do it with uh, with 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 elite performers and, and Olympic performers. It's not it's not going to happen. Right. And uh, and so so there was only one group of people that w- were used to paying for training, and that was salespeople. So um, I started training salespeople, and, and, and it seemed to work. It seemed to resonate with, with the, the same thing I was talking about. A sales call is very much like shooting, shooting a shot. Uh, so, but, the, but then the salespeople says, well, hey, lady, we know that you put holes in paper 50 meters away, but have you ever, uh, have you ever sold anything? And I said, no. So well, we'd listen to you a lot better if you went out and sold something. So. <laughs> right. I started a sales, a sales uh, business, and it took me a while to get there, but we got to the point where we're pulling down about $24 million a year in sales. And, and then, then I didn't have any problem because after I had had thousands of reje- rejections and, and did, done thousands and thousands of presentations and done all the things that, uh, that I was trying to teach people to do, what I'm really trying to do is not to tell them what to say. That, that's in- industry-specific. I'm, there's people that, 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 that do that. I'm trying to tell them what to think about before they say it or what to think about it after, after the action, after the presentation or whatever that task is, so, so that their self-image will be protected and that their conscious, conscious thought will be more consistent. And when you do that, you, you, you achieve consistency and you get higher results and you stay sane. And at the same time, you can you can reduce pressure, because think about the difference between where I was in 1972 and 76. 1972, I went in without mental management, and I was scared to death, and my heart rate was 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 pounding, and all I could think about is I've got to get a ten, I've got to win this thing, I've got to I've got to beat my teammates, I've got to come home with a, with a gold medal. That's a tremendous amount of pressure I put on myself. In 1976, I remember thinking going into the the um, the competition. I remember thinking, let's see, what do I have to do today? Well, you have to preload the first shot. You know how to preload, Lenny? I'm the best. 
don't have to run a mill program. You know how to run a mill program, Lane? I'm the best in the world at it. Okay, that'll set up the shot. And after the shot, I'm going to reload the reload shot, which is a mill process. Okay, you know how to do that, Lane? I'm the best in the world at it. That's all I had to do. And pretty soon, I'm going to run out of bullets. And the tournament's going to be over. And I'm going to, I'm going to maximize my execution and let the outcome happen. Man, such a good lesson. Such a good lesson for all of us. I know we could go on forever. We could probably do 10, 10 podcast episodes on all of this, but I'll link everything up in show notes and the different lists and bullet points and categories that you put out there. I've got one more question. I think we've already covered it, but I want to single it out and put a spotlight on it here. I know that you're working on, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe you're working on a book for, uh, for uh, youth or for people, for, for kids uh, in, in organized sports. Is that correct? Help me out here, fill in the blanks where I'm wrong. Actually, I'm, I'm, I've got two pet projects right now. The first, the first one is I'm working on a, on a book for parents. My next book will be a book for parents of competitive youth. Parents are mental coaches, but they're not trained to be, and I'm going to help them. I'm going to teach them what we have found out that works, and being able to shape the young minds of the people they care about the most, their own kids. As they, as they get into sports, they can apply it to academics as well or vocational things, but uh, parents um, uh, can... By some of the things that we can teach them, they can have an easier and better time in empowering their kids to think the right way. So I'm excited about that project. The second project is that we've developed curriculum uh, to to teach mental management in high school, and we've got yeah. some high schools that are have bought onto the program, and we're going to be training their teachers to teach it. And uh, we're very excited about it. Matter of fact, one of them is uh, is here in the North Dallas area, so we're like, really excited about working with uh, uh, with them. Yeah, that's great. For those listeners out there who don't know um, my story, and very few of you do, I don't know why you would, but uh, with, with Lanny, I know I've mentioned him in probably a handful of my podcasts out there without him even knowing about it, but I had followed Lanny's work for years. I'd read the book and just decided to call him up one day and invite him on the podcast as much as his work had been impactful to me. And I looked at his number and it was a 972 number, which is here in Dallas. And I thought, oh my gosh, have I been following this guy for the last, you know, seven or eight years, not even knowing that he's right here around the corner from where we are. So Lanny invited me up to his mental management uh, center here that I'm going to go up to. And and at some point we're going to get together and go take a look at that. I'm thrilled and excited about that. And before I forget, before we jump off the podcast, that, uh, that first part there is what you were talking about as far as with the, you know, book for the parents about the kids. I think that's just so phenomenal for us as parents to be able to teach them early on what it is that they need to do to really protect their self-image. And, you know, it, that could just go on and on. But three, the thing I wanted to put a spotlight on are the three things, the three questions that you ask your athletes that you also think, you also think parents should be asking their kids. And I think we covered it a little bit earlier, but I do want to put a spotlight on it. What are those three questions that we could leave our listeners with? Okay, so one of the, the tips in this book is, is that when I talk to my athletes uh, after a, a game or after a competition or PJ Tour event or whatever it is, is I ask them three questions. And in this order, the first question I ask them is, what did you do well? I want to get them talking about what they did right. And so many times people are prone to talk about what they did wrong. And, and your self-image imprints most immediately after the action. So the conversations that you have and the parents have with their kids when, uh, when the kids get in the car or the ride on the way home uh, are, are critical. And the first thing that you want is you want them reinforcing what they did well. The second thing is 
Second question is, what did you learn? Now, we don't learn a lot when everything goes great. Now, I'm, I'm all for everything going right, but we learn when it doesn't. And, and we're being taught something. When, things, when, when we don't do things right, there's an opportunity to contrast what happened with what should happen. And so get them focused on what did you learn? What did this teach you? Or what, what, do you, what is the difference between where you are and where you want to go? And the third question is, what are you going to do about it? I mean, is this going to build you or break you? I don't actually say that, but that's exactly what, what I'm looking for, is I'm looking for someone to say, to be motivated by the fact that they, that they know what to do and they know that they've learned something from this and they should feel good about the fact. When you make a mistake and you learn from it, that's not an error. That, that's, that's not an error. That's not something that's, that, that, that is bad. That is something that's great. Right. I would much, much rather you go out and make a mistake and learn from it. But if you make a mistake and, and, and beat yourself up, you're going exactly the wrong direction. And parents need to see that. Coaches need to see that. Teachers need to see that. And, um, and when they do, most of the time, they, they agree with me. Right. Lanny, thanks so much for the work that you're doing, not only for your athletes, but for us in the business world and for our kiddos as well. And that new uh, that new path that you're going down with the with the new book and the high school work and all of that. So I obviously obviously want to steer more traffic your way. Where can we point our listeners over? I know you've got your your fully functioning website up that can steer some people over there. Where else can we find you just out there in the world? Yeah, I mean, if you go to mentalmanagement.com, it's our corporate site. If you, uh, you'll be redirected there. If you want to buy a product, it's mentalmanagementstore.com. If you want to take an online course, or uh, you can go to mentalmanagementcourses.com. So th- those are our places. Just give us a call. I mean, you know, we office in Flower Mound, so uh, we're kind of local guys. And uh, uh, unlike most people that are mental coaches, uh, if you call our office, uh, someone will answer. So give us a call. And, 972-899-9640 and somebody uh, that's probably going to be pretty happy to hear from you will answer the phone. And just a phenomenal book, guys. I can't go on and on about this anymore and, and do it any justice, but with Winning in Mind, you've got to go get your own copy. And uh, Lanny, I think I read at one point that it's the number one selling Amazon book that's been self-published. Is that correct? I don't know for sure if that's true. I, I know that, that we've got a very good Amazon number and Amazon's been really good for, good to us for a long time. They can certainly buy the book from us. If they buy the book from us, uh, we sign all the books that go out and we'll actually personalize them if that's what you want. Uh, but if you want a, uh, a Kindle version or an iBook version, that's the place to go for something that you want to download to an iPad or an Android device. And you guys have the audio version? I've, I've never checked. I'm just curious if you guys have an audio version. Oh yeah, sure we do. Mm-hmm. I would think that a lot of the things that I read in your book would be a little hard to follow just by audio, just not seeing it visually right there in front of you. For those out there listening that might want to get a copy, I'm a huge audiobook fan, but with this one, I would say get the get the actual copy and what better than get a personalized copy uh, from you. So yeah, go, go straight through you guys. So Lanny, thanks again so much for your time. I will link everything up, like I said, in the show notes and link everything to you. And we just appreciate so much of what you're doing to make us all better. So thanks again. Okay, Jared. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye-bye.
Guys, I'm so fortunate to have had Lanny Basham on the show today to bring his mental management strategy systems to us and the knowledge that he's learned over the years of tweaking this and getting himself dialed into a new mindset around his mental game. If you've enjoyed the Success 101 podcast, the greatest honor you can give me for the time and effort and work that go into this show is to head over to iTunes and give it a five-star rating and leave a review. That's what lets Apple know that you think this show is awesome and keeps this thing going on into the future. As always, if you want to connect directly with me, you can do that through my email address, which is info at success101podcast.com or in the world of social media on Facebook at facebook.com slash success101podcast, on Twitter at Warren Jared, or on Instagram at success101podcast. Had a great time with Lanny here on the show today, and I hope you did as well. I'll catch you again on the next episode of The Success 101 Podcast. Until then.